as we go throughout the book of Revelation, there are going to be larger chunks like this that we're covering. And uh, I just wanted you to, to hear from my heart one of the reasons that we're going to um, read those chunks aloud is, well, there's really two main reasons. The first is that the scripture tells us to pay careful attention to the public reading of God's word. So we want to do that. That's good and right. And then second, if you've been with us uh, throughout this study so far, chapter one, verse three, John, the writer says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. And so we want to pay careful attention to the public reading of God's word. And we also uh, want to read this because John says that we will be blessed in reading, hearing, and keeping it. Uh, A few things before we get into uh, the text this morning. And the first is this. Uh, Throughout the month of February, we've been encouraging our regular attenders, our covenant partners here at South Point to join on a serve team. So there's lots of ways that you can serve the body on a Sunday morning, whether that is uh, back in the sound booth or that's in kids ministry, uh, that is a barista team, usher, greeter, so many ways to serve the body. One of the ways that I'm really excited about how we're going to kind of reintroduce serve teams is that we're opening a new prayer team. If you haven't served up, if you haven't signed up, if you haven't served up already, um, you can do that on the prayer team. It's, a, it's going to be a wonderful new team where we're actually going to have individuals praying throughout the, the time that we're worshiping in this room. And so they're going to get here early, find out needs in the body, and make sure that they're praying over the preacher, uh, the preached word, needs in our body, uh, partners in our church. And so um, that's one way to serve. There are some needs on the parking team and in the kids' ministry as well. So uh, on your way out today, if you haven't already stopped to sign up on the whiteboard, uh, you can do that today. Second, um, thank you for those of you who have uh, generously given to the needs of your church family. We're so grateful for the ways that you've partnered with us. If you would like to do that, uh, there are three different ways. One is you can sign up um, on sign up. You could really just go to the website, southpoint.org slash give. You could give any amount, texting to 84321. You could also give uh, in the way, on your way out in the atrium, um, and you could give any amount there. We don't talk about giving uh, every Sunday here at South Point. Um, maybe it's something that we've reacted to in the past. You won't see us uh, pass an offering plate, not that that's good or bad. We just don't do it. And last week, a gentleman came up to me after the service. He said, Pastor... I have no idea how to give here. So I just want you to know you can give, and, uh, and you can give generously, as the scriptures have said. And so uh, if, if just one of those ways works for you, that would be great, and we would be uh, very thankful um, for your partnership in that. And then finally, if you're new with us today, there's a connect card on the chair in front of you, and there should be, although there's not on this, there may be a QR code. You could scan that. If you'd like to do it that way, or you could take this connect card to the next step table on your way out. We have a gift to give you, and uh, one of our pastors will follow up with you uh, this week. So there's, there's that. I, I want to pray again, and uh, we'll jump into the text. Father, thank you. I thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. I thank you that uh, this book of Revelation is good for us today. I pray However, you would like to, by your Holy Spirit, reveal yourself to us and work in our hearts that we would be open and receptive uh, to the word, uh, doing that which is most glorifying to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, You should have a a handout on the chair that you sat in, and that's going to be uh, about the seven churches. You don't have to look at that right now. It's just for you to take home with you or to jot notes Uh, Down today, as we talk about the seven churches, Pastor Michael uh, made that up for us, uh, really because there is so much that we're not going to be able to cover today. But you'll see some basic information about each church. You'll see what Jesus is calling that particular church out of and towards. And then you'll see a question that you might ask yourself as you work through this. Now, There's going to continue to be lots of information as we walk through this book of Revelation. 
the key is to remember our goal is not to amass the right amount of information, but rather it is that we might posture ourselves so that the Holy Spirit could do a work of transformation while we go through this book. And so just a few introductory comments for our text this morning. The first is this. Jesus, in chapters 2 and 3, is going to refer to himself and different aspects of himself for each church in the way that John communicated about him in chapter 1. So we have chapter 1, which is this beautiful picture of the risen Christ, if you were here with us last week, and that picture of the risen Christ helps us to understand Jesus' own message to the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. And then these two chapters, 2 and 3, help us to understand what is to come in chapters 4 through the end of the book. So we're about to, beginning next week, get 18 more chapters of these really vivid images of the power and mercy of the living God. We'll also see him coming in judgment and final salvation. Now, as we walk through the seven churches, you may see some sort of structural pattern emerge. Most commentators, if you were to go to them, would, would record such a structure, and they might word it a little differently. So I just picked one of them, okay? And this is a commentator named William Hendrickson, and I'm going to walk through the way that he structured each, or he tells us that Jesus structured each of the letters to the seven churches, and I'm going to do that with the first church, Ephesus. I won't as much do that as we go through the other churches, but you'll get a gist, okay? So as I mentioned last week, I was going to put up a picture so that you have a visual of the seven churches. You see there in the corner left, you see the island of Patmos. Now, what, what's significant about the island of Patmos if you were here with us last week? That's where John is exiled. John, the author, is exiled on the island of Patmos. And then the next, the, the first letter that Jesus addresses is the church at Ephesus, which is where we will go first. And then they kind of make a, a journey around in a, an amoeba-like circle, if you will. And that's how Jesus is going to speak to each church. So Ephesus, again, it's the closest to the island of Patmos, where John the writer is exiled. Now, to the structure, we first see a salutation, okay? So if you're looking there with me in chapter 2, verse 1, there is the salutation. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Now, while we're on this, we're going to go ahead and get this out of the way because it's good and you may be wondering, who is Who's the angel? Okay, that's the question. Now, I'm going to give you three really good possibilities, and then I'll also tell you that which I favor. So first, it could be just an angel. Like, you and I know them to be a supernatural being in the heavenly places. Second, uh, many believe that the angel here, the angel of the churches. Uh, are human messengers like pastors that John is right, that Jesus is speaking to human messengers like pastors so that they might then speak to the church. Or third, it could be just a metaphorical way of speaking to the church, like the general ethos of the church, if you will. But my, my personal preference is the first, that this is just an angel representative of the church in the heavenly places. Okay, so when Jesus says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, he's writing to this spiritual being, an angel, if you will, that is representative of a particular church right here in Ephesus. Okay, now, one reason I think that, and, uh, and, and you can do your own personal study if you like, is that this particular word, angel, in the Greek, in this form, is angelos, angelos, okay? And when angelos is used throughout the rest of John's vision, it's always speaking of an angel as 
a heavenly being. So that's one particular reason that I think that that's the most favorable view. But now for a bit about the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is the city in which the apostle Paul spent three years teaching God's word. So they're a really well-taught church. We see that in Acts chapter 20, verse 31. We also know that Apollos, Timothy, and the apostle John, who pins this revelation, also taught here as well. So you first see the salutation. Second, in the structure, after we have the salutation, we then see Christ's self-designation. Okay, This is where Jesus describes himself using something that John described him as in chapter 1. So here, to the church at Ephesus, Jesus says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, who are the seven stars? The angels. And what are the seven golden lampstands? churches. How do we know that? It's, it's in the previous chapter, right? Particularly verse 20 of chapter 1, where Jesus tells us exactly what those symbols mean. Now, I mentioned this last week. We don't always get this in the book of Revelation, okay? So this is just a freebie. Jesus is like, if you're not going to know any other symbol or meaning in this book, you're going to know what these two things mean. Before we move on, as the lamp stands, Jesus says about his church and people in Matthew chapter 6 that we are to be the what of the world, the light of the world, a light shining in darkness. So as Jesus writes to the seven churches, he's calling each of these churches out of the darkness to be the light in which he made them to be. I want you to keep that image in your mind as you hear about the seven lampstands. As Jesus addresses each of these churches with his own self-designation, he's He's revealing and giving to each church a characteristic of himself that they desperately need. Third, we see Christ's commendation. This is the third part of Jesus' structure. It's his commendation. In verse 2, Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So to each of these churches, Jesus begins with an I know. Most of the time he says, I know your works, just like he says to those here in Ephesus. Again, this is an incredibly well-taught church. They know a lot of doctrine. In fact, in our foundations class this morning, we looked at Ephesians chapter four, where the apostle Paul actually writes, hey, hey, you need to know what the Bible says. You need to know the word of God so that you would not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And that would be true about this church at Ephesus, even as Jesus is speaking to them. They're well taught. He says, you know exactly how to spot a false teacher. I'm not, have, I'm not having to worry if you're going to figure out if someone is speaking a false doctrine. He says he knows that they haven't been bearing with those who are evil. If someone comes into their midst and says a particular doctrine that's false, they're like, hey, that's not going to be taught here. We're not going to allow that doctrine to go forward here in our church. They've tested self-proclaimed apostles, as the scripture says, and they have found them to be false. Fourth, we see Christ's condemnation. We don't want to miss that. He always gives a commendation most of the time, generally. You'll see where he doesn't soon. We also see Christ's condemnation. Verse four, Jesus says, but this I have against you. I don't know about you, but if Jesus were to write me a letter today and he says, but I have this against you. That's what you call the fear of God, right? 
All of a sudden, your ears open wider. Your eyes perk open. What is Jesus saying to the church? But I have this against you, he says to the church at Ephesus, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. This church seemed to have started out strong. Again, well taught. Lots of apostles, lots of disciples have been at the forefront of this Christian community. They know the right things, but somewhere along the way, something changed. Maybe, just maybe. They focused so much on the truth of the gospel that their love and wonder of it diminished. This church is more than 40 years old at the time of Jesus speaking this word to them. I wonder if it's possible that that what was written in Judges chapter 2 about the generations before them that had kind of stopped teaching who God was to their children, and then those children stopped teaching to their children, so they ended up with a generation who nothing knew nothing about the things of God. Could it be that this was also the case in Ephesus? That there was a young church planting team who was zealous about the works of God, who was excited about the doctrine of the gospel, and then they just stopped teaching it to their kids, who stopped teaching it to their kids. And now Jesus says, I have this thing against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. I wonder how this hits us as Christians. Can you point to a a time in your life where the love that you had for Christ was burning white hot? You'd tell anyone and everyone about Jesus and what he had done for you. Perhaps you can't point to any particular deterrent along the way, but just life as it ebbs and flows that got in the way of your relationship with Jesus. Is that you this morning? Fifth, we have Christ's warning. Verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Jesus says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And then there's a tag here to the Ephesian church. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And did you know, statistically, in the post-COVID world, that church attendance patterns are showing that the average attender is down one more time a month than they were pre-COVID. So if the average attender attended two and a half times per month before COVID, they now attend church how many times? One and a half times. You say, well, how do you attend church one and a half times? That's how statistics work, okay? Now, Christ Jesus doesn't give the church at Ephesus a warning. I want you to get this so that members could look around and say, well, I mean, I've been here two and a half times this month. Good for you. And they've only been here one and a half times this month, which again, doesn't exactly work like that. But Jesus does not write to this church so that the members in this church would evaluate themselves on the basis of other members. No, Jesus is comparing the church at Ephesus to who? Himself and his all-surpassing glory. And he says, in essence, one and a half times a month aren't cutting it. Now you say, Chris, that's a little harsh. And I would say, yes, Jesus comes to this church who knew everything about the gospel. They had the best teachers in all of Christianity speaking to them. And Jesus says, and yet you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You've lost it somewhere along the way. And we measure in in church attendance Jesus says, I've given you my life so that you might surrender yours to me. It's all mine in light of my surpassing glory and the resurrection. Doctrine, you see, friends, is supposed to lead to devotion. 
Doctrine is not just for itself, that we might grow in all kinds of knowledge. The Apostle Paul says, in fact, if we're looking at it that way, what does knowledge do? It puffs up. Doctrine is supposed to lead us to devotion. We don't learn more about God so that we can feel better about ourselves, but rather we learn more about God so that we can worship him all the more in spirit and truth. So Jesus says to this church, turn from this and do the works you did at first. Sixth, there's Christ's exhortation. He says, he that has ears, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Before we go any further, do we have ears to hear what Jesus says to us this morning? Are we really open to seeing Jesus, to seeing ourselves as Jesus sees us? Or are we ready, locked and loaded, to justify, to defend, or perhaps even dismiss what Jesus has to say? Seventh, which I think is appropriate, there would be seven points to Jesus's letters to the churches, and it's Christ's promise. To Ephesus, Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the only way in which we will be able to do that which Christ is calling us by walking by faith in his promise. I don't want you to miss that. There are some harsh realities that we're about to get to. This isn't the least of those harsh realities. And yet every single time, Christ, as he speaks his word of commendation, as he speaks his words of condemnation, he always offers a way out. He always offers his own a promise to the one who conquers. I'll give you this. There's always a word of promise to those who are his. And as we conclude Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus, prayerfully consider, you see that on your paper, is my relationship with God more like obeying rules or is it like running to the arms of a loving dad? Second, the church at Smyrna. You see the church at Smyrna beginning in verse 8 where we see the words of the first and last who died and came to life. Jesus says to this church in verse nine, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You see, these people were rich spiritually because they were in relationship with Jesus, but at the same time, they were financially poor. They didn't have anything. Their commitment to Christ actually prevented them from participating in the business community in the place that is Smyrna. Think about it. Roman citizens didn't want to buy bread from bakers who said that they were a part of the way. Roman citizens didn't want to hire people who acknowledged Christ before all men if, if they were going to do work in their homes. And when they hear in verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer, surely this church has to be thinking, wait, Jesus, we've already suffered enough. We literally don't have any financial resources. Behold, Jesus says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, last week, we looked at some of the symbols and some of the numbers that will recur while we're looking at the book of Revelation, and we saw the number 10, which means completeness in the human dimension. So when Jesus says here, for 10 days you will have tribulation, it means simply that it will have its intended effect. It'll last as long as God wants it to so that this church in Smyrna would get exactly what the Lord wants for it to get. Now just a side note, perhaps you've heard the name Polycarp in church history but Polycarp, it's possible that he was the bishop of the church of Smyrna while Jesus is speaking here to this church. We know that he was a pupil of the apostle John, and in the year AD 155, he had been asked to say, Caesar is Lord. 
which Polycarp resisted and refused. So he was then taken to a stadium, and he was told once again, denounce Christ. Say that he's not Lord. Say that Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp replies, 80 and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then could I blaspheme my king and my savior? Polycarp eventually says, after much dialogue, but why carry on? Do what you're going to do. To which this man, a bishop in the church at Smyrna, was burned at the stake. I don't know who in particular needs to hear this message to the church at Smyrna this morning, but Jesus never promised the disciple an easy life. I'm sorry if you were sold anything different in coming to Christ. Suffering is absolutely a vital part of the Christian life that you and I cannot do without. And as we see here, some in the Christian life will indeed suffer more than others. Jesus doesn't promise an easy life to this church. He doesn't promise that he'll remove the suffering from among them, but he does give them a promise of himself in verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The question that I want us to ponder this morning from this church is, is the kingdom of God worth laying down my life on this earth for? Third, Pergamum. You see it there in verse 12. Jesus speaks to this church as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And as he does, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Why does he say where Satan's throne is? Well, Pergamum was like a state capital, if you will. There was an amazing library there. There were several temples to Greco-Roman gods. And outside the city, there was this huge altar overarching the entire place to Zeus. So Jesus might have been saying, I know the kind of environment in which you are seeking to be faithful to me in. I get it. I know that it's a hard place. It's a secular city. Everyone is bent against me, he says at the end of verse 13. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, when my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. I believe church history tells us about Antipas, that it was said that he was actually placed in a metal bull, that which uh, pagan gods uh, were sacrificed to, and he was placed in this metal bull, and he was burned to death in it. This is the state of Christianity at this time. The church, Jesus said, you've stood faithful in, in the face of all of this difficulty, even when one among you has given his own life. As we said last week, though, the two-edged sword means there's another side. And Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. Verse 14, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. In Numbers chapter 22, we're told about this Balaam that Jesus is referring to, that he was an enemy of God's people, and he sent young women from Moab into the Israelites' camp to lure the the young men into sexual promiscuity and sin. In Pergamum, where so many worshipped pagan gods, there were likely some within the church that had too been lured into sexual immorality and idolatry. And get this, they thought that they could do everything. That we could give ourselves one towards sexual immorality and on the other hand, that we could give ourselves fully to the living God. 
We could give ourselves in every way to that which the world says is good, and we could also give ourselves to the things of God. Is that possible, Christian? No. Jesus says some of them held to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. These are the ones that the Ephesians were commended in hating, which basically encouraged cultural accommodation and secular living. Some in the church were likely to have said something like this. Y'all, it's no big deal to participate in all of these ritual feasts. In fact, it's a blessing that we get to live in a time and place like this where there is so much and so plenty, so many things to be thankful for. And get this, if you go to the ritual feast, it'll give you an opportunity to build friendships and speak the gospel eventually. Won't that be an amazing thing? You can give yourself to everything that the world has and also everything that God has. You can do both. This church carried very little for doctrine and subsequently didn't do much to oppose that kind of false teaching. But listen, I want you to hear this loud and clear. As Christians, we likely go one way or the other. Some of us are heavy on doctrine and we are low on grace. Other Christians seem to be heavy on grace and mercy and really low on doctrine. Doctrine doesn't matter as long as you love and support everyone. But I want you to hear this again loud and clear. Both of those potholes are anti-gospel. That's not the gospel. You don't get to a balanced view of Christianity by adding what you are missing. You don't get to a fuller gospel over here by adding just a little bit more grace. You don't get to a fuller gospel over here by adding a little more doctrine. You get to a fuller gospel by repenting, is what Jesus says. That's his medicine in chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, repent. If they would not repent, Jesus says that he would come to them soon and war against them with his mouth. But if they would repent, he says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, there's a couple of things for us to break down there. What in the world is this hidden manna? It certainly has to be connected to the manna that we've been introduced to earlier in the Bible. In Israelites, 40 years in the wilderness, they were given this food to eat. That's how God fed his people. But notice here, Jesus says that he's going to give them a manna in which is hidden. I'm convinced that this manna is also connected to what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 6, verse 35, that this church, if they repent, will, he will give to them himself who is the what of life? The bread of life. And Jesus also says he will give them a white stone. Now, lots of views here, but in the ancient world, a white ceremonial stone called a tessera had a number of different meanings, and each could be applied to those who repent and overcome. There's going to be a name written there, though. Whether it is a new name for the Christian or Christ reveals a new name to them for himself, the white stone definitely speaks to a new identity. The question for us this morning is this, what idolatry or immorality am I flirting with? What is it that at the end of the day, if someone asked you about this particular aspect of your life, you would say, well... It's, it's really okay. Jesus doesn't really mind that I'm flirting with this, that I'm giving myself to it. In fact, I know a lot of brothers and sisters in my church that give themselves to the same thing. What is it that you're justifying? What is it that you're defending? What idolatry or immorality am I flirting with? Fourth, Thyatira. 
This message, the text tells us, comes from the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Again, like we said last week, we're supposed to immediately connect to the image of the holiness of God here. Before pointing out their lack of holiness, he gives a word of encouragement in verse 19. Look there with me. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Anybody ever heard that name? Yeah. Most of us do not name our children that. And whether you know the reason why or not, it's probably because of the Bible. Now, Jesus says there's so much love and faith and service, even patient endurance in this particular church, but they had an issue with holiness. And I don't want us to miss that. There could be a lot of great things happening within our church, and we forget that there is one who we are to live in light of, and that is a holy God. They were tolerating sexual immorality and idolatry. Calling this woman Jezebel connects us to a Jezebel in the Old Testament in 1 Kings who urged the Israelites to worship Baal and the Ashtaroth alongside the Lord. Again, they thought that they could have both. Best of the both. The message that the church at Thyatira was hearing was, you can do anything that your friends do and you can love God. How great is that? You can have Christianity your way. Apparently, this Jezebel was encouraging members to learn the deep things of Satan. We see that in verse 24. She was probably saying things like, if you don't go and do everything that the sinners do, how will you ever conquer sin or lead people to a relationship with Christ? If you don't go into the strip club, how are you going to know what it's like? How are you going to call people out of that life? You can have it both ways. Nancy Guthrie wrote, wondering if Jezebel was encouraging the church members to give themselves to sexual immorality, all the while saying, don't worry, Jesus knows your heart. And that would be true, wouldn't it? Jesus does know our hearts. Jesus does know the hearts in Thyatira, but he would not see innocence and goodness. In the church here, he saw spiritual adultery. You cannot possibly give yourself to everything the world has to offer and not be burned one day by the wrath of God. Church, I haven't met anyone here named Jezebel. Maybe that's your middle name and you haven't told me. That's okay. But don't let that fool you into believing that there are not some of us who have been lured into sexual immorality or idolatry. Jesus won't tolerate it for long. He says in verse 21 that he gave Jezebel time to repent, but she refuses Verse 22, he says he's going to throw her onto a sickbed along with those who commit adultery with her unless they repent. You see, you may think that your browser history is clear and that your GPS can't be tracked, that the way you spend your time at work won't be found out, but Jesus searches. Verse 23, and he wants all the churches to know this. He searches the mind and the heart. You'll be found out at the end of the day. Come clean now, Jesus says to the churches. Not all of the church at Thyatira had been influenced, though. Jesus tells those to hold fast to what they have until he comes. And to those who do hold fast until Christ's return, he would use them to impact the world. They would exercise authority over the nations. Ask yourself, have I been seduced by voices that twist scripture to justify or minimize sexual sin or idolatry. Fifth, Sardis. Let's get to it. Chapter three, verse one. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God are, is who? 
the Holy Spirit, and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This is incredibly sobering to me. When I, when I meet someone in another part of town and they tell me where to go to church, if it's true, I often find myself saying, man, that's a really great church. I hear, I hear a lot of good things are happening in that church. When I was in middle school, my family and I were a part of self-proclaimed, but it was called South Atlanta's Exciting Church. Jesus' words to the church at Sardis here remind us that it doesn't really matter what you call it. It doesn't matter how many people say that your church, our church, is great. If Jesus calls your church dead, it's dead. What's sobering is that our churches have the potential to be like Christmas trees. In that you head out to the Christmas tree farm, you cut it down. Don't miss that. You remove it from its source of life, and then you take it home, and you put it up in your living room. I do this too, okay? Not calling you out. But here's what we do. We take this tree home, and we dress it up, and we put these beautiful ornaments on it, and we put these lights all around it, and we look at it every morning. We come in there and drink our coffee, and we're like, how beautiful is this Christmas tree? And it is. But that won't last long, will it? If you keep that tree up through the month of January, you will soon find out that that beautiful-looking tree is actually what? Dead. The sobering reality is that our churches could be this exact same way. Lots of people say, man, great things are happening at South Point. I hear that that's a really good church. There's some really good people there. And yet Jesus' words to the church at Sardis is, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are in fact dead. It's haunting to me that they had missed that they were not semi-alive. They were not just kind of alive, but they were all the way dead. What was it that they had missed? I think it was spiritual sloth. Jesus says, beginning in verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will know at what hour I come against you. You see, the church at Sardis was a sleepy church. The preaching had stopped penetrating their hearts. Whenever they were encouraged to pursue Christ in any particular way, maybe through spiritual disciplines, whether it was reading scripture or praying or memorizing scripture or journaling, whether it was sharing Christ with their neighbors or if it was fighting sin, they decided Okay, I feel, I feel some semblance of the Spirit urging me to grow in relationship to himself in this way, and I'm going to let the urge die down. They lost their appetite. Perhaps the people here thought they knew it all, that they didn't need the elementary doctrines of the faith any longer, but still, some were awake. Look at verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white for their worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed dust in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear that the spirit says to the churches and to them, there is a promise of eternal life that when the book is opened, they will be assured that their name is read. Now, I don't want to miss that without explaining this. Those that will hear that news on the final day, that your name is indeed written in the Lamb's book of life, your name will have not gotten there because of your good works. If someone asks you, 
Why are you standing before a holy God on that final day? Why should I let you into the heavenly places? You will not be able to say on that day, it is because of the good works that I accomplished while I was on planet Earth. Earth. It will only be because of the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, who in fact lived a perfect life, a life that you and I could not live because of our sin nature. He died a death that you and I deserve to die because there was wrath storing up by God for us on our behalf. And yet Jesus, for his own, died a death on a criminal's cross and he absorbed the wrath of God so that we, his people, might be able to stand in his place having the very righteousness of God given to us, that which we did not deserve. That's the gospel message. And on that final day, you will be able to have great confidence that you can enter into the heavenly places with God, not because of anything in this life that you have done good or bad, but because of the work of Christ Jesus alone. And that is good news. And that is the confidence in which Jesus desires for his people. We're to ask ourselves, what place does Jesus occupy in my life. What place does he occupy in my life? Six, Philadelphia, the words of Christ, the Holy One, there in verse seven of of chapter three. The true one who is the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Jesus says to this church, I know your works again. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This church, Jesus says, had kept his words, but they had little power. They had kept his word and had not denied his rule and authority in their lives, but they would rather play it safe. Let's just have a nice, peaceful Christianity. Let's not try to get in the news. I'm like, amen. Let's try, to, let's try to play it cool. They kept everything that Jesus had to say to them, and yet they had little power. It seems like there were some in the church who were calling themselves Jews, but Jesus says they weren't really a part of his church. They were actually a part of the synagogue of Satan in verse 9, and he was going to come and make them bow before the feet of those in Philadelphia. That's why Jesus refers to him as the one who holds the key of David. I wonder if we would be content in the church of Philadelphia. Everything is fine. It's good. People are getting along. People seem to be following the commands of Christ. People are understanding the basic tenets of the gospel, and yet there was little power. They're relatively calm, nothing too crazy, but Jesus anticipated for his church and subsequently ours as well, something greater than what they expected and imagined for themselves because he was going to keep them from what was coming to the world. He was going to make those who endure to the end a pillar in the temple of his God, something firm and strong that stands forever. He was going to write on those individuals the name of God and the name of the city of his God, the new Jerusalem, along with his own name. All of this was to be the very fuel for evangelistic zeal and power. Ask yourself, When was the last time that I shared Jesus with someone? Say, how does that connect to the church here at Philadelphia, Chris? I'd say it connects to the church at Philadelphia because there could be a loss uh, of evangelistic zeal in a church that has little power because we don't believe that Jesus is still in the business of saving souls. And he absolutely is, and he has a desire that we might be a part of that great work. And then there was one, Laodicea. And so the angel of the church in Laodicea writes the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation there in verse 14. I know your works, he says, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you 
were either cold or hot, so because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You've heard the saying, the truth hurts. I think that this is what's happening here. Jesus skips the commendation this time, and he goes straight for the condemnation. Their lives made Jesus want to do what? Vomit. And you know what's wild is that it wasn't their immorality that he points to here. Or even the false teaching that was running rampant in so many of the other churches. Nope, he was disgusted by the church at Laodicea's apparent lack of need for him. You see, Jesus for the church at Laodicea was nothing more than an extra blessing to everything else that was going well in their life. Verse 17, for you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked What was the problem? It wasn't, it was that there weren't any problems. That was the problem. And so the church at Laodicea's posture before the Lord himself was, I need nothing. Jesus had come to offer himself and they were unmoved. All is good here. William Hendrickson asked, Who is more to be pitied than an individual who imagines that he is a fine Christian, whereas in reality the Christ himself is utterly disgusted with him? The good news is that Jesus will never leave his people in that kind of state. Verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. What do we come to Christ with? Absolutely nothing except our need for him. That's how we come to Christ. And he wants us to move in close to address our need. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me, the one who conquers. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Full disclosure, About 15 years ago, I had the opportunity to preach about this particular church to a school chapel. And I really love Jesus' call to repentance to the church here. Jesus wanted to vomit this church from his mouth, and I was really good at telling the middle and high school students that that day. He is fed up with you neither being hot nor cold. He hates that you are lukewarm, and because of it, he wants to vomit you out of his mouth. But I tell you this, I missed the promise that day. And I don't want to do that again. But the promise isn't what we like. I'll admit that also. When folks come for counseling, I often offer them something than what they first come for. Pastor, we're struggling with these particular things in our marriage. Can you fix us? Yeah, sure, no problem, right? Here's the question. Are you at the end of yourself? Do you recognize your own brokenness apart from your spouse's? Well, I mean, I, 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 want it, I want things to get better. I mean, like, we want better communication skills, more coping strategies for how to, you know, handle parenting. It's really tough. Yes, I know. Better is good, but better will lead to lukewarm. Jesus offers his people life, but the only way to true life is to recognize your utter need for Christ. 
We must come to the end of ourselves. We must realize that I am absolutely a broken person in need of everything in order to have the gospel. There's this promise for those who open the door for Christ that he will then eat with him. No longer is he saying he will vomit you, but he, for those that, who are his, he will dine with them. Not a greater threat nor a greater promise. This church had failed to see their absolute need for Christ. This morning, as you hear those words, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I want you to place yourself in one of these three categories. And ask the Lord to take your heart and make it into whatever he pleases. And the first category is this. Perhaps you have never turned that handle. Jesus says he he stands at the door knocking. Jesus Christ in his mercy has come your way. Would you then by faith open the door this morning? It's the first category. Second is this. Perhaps you opened the door a long time ago. That means you've been converted to Christ, and yet you've lost your first love. You identify with the church at Ephesus. You've learned the doctrine. You're even working out the good works. You did the the good works. Maybe you still do them, but you lost your first love. You've become lukewarm and complacent. That's the second category. The third, maybe you've opened that door. You've been converted to Christ. You've trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, but you have never fully surrendered yourself to the risen Christ. There were were rooms that you let Jesus enter into and have his way, and there were others that you would say, I'm not ready for you to do anything in those places yet. Sure, Jesus gets to dictate this room of religion. He gets to say that I'm going to be a part of a church, that I'm going to give financially, and that I'm going to involve myself in a serve team, just like Pastor Chris asked in the announcements. Jesus doesn't quite get to speak into what I watch on Netflix or how I get to spend my time the rest of the week or the things that I say. He doesn't really have access to those areas in my life. Have you been converted to Christ? Have you opened that door? Christ has come in and you have failed to surrender yourself to him. The good news of the gospel is that Christ Jesus, for all that who are his, he will not stop until he has every bit of your life. That's the good news of the gospel. He wants your family. He wants your sexuality. He wants your money, your past, your future, your dreams. He wants your fears, your anger, your depression. He wants your trauma. Will you open the door Today, will you surrender your life to Christ for the first time or even the millionth? What does that look like for you today? Perhaps you've never turned the handle. Trust in Christ by faith for the forgiveness of sins today. Perhaps you've opened the door a long time ago and you forgot your first love. Repent. He says it all throughout the letters to the seven churches. Repent. The promise is for you. Enjoy the life that Christ has. And then third, maybe you've opened the door, but you've never surrendered every bit of your life to him. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us a chance to look to your word this morning. All that you have to say to to the seven churches. God, I pray that we might be sensitive to the working of your spirit. 
And I pray if the categories that I came up with don't fit someone that they wouldn't necessarily justify or defend or rebel, but Father, that they would find themselves in a posture before you, a holy God who desires that all of their life will be lived and surrender to you. God, I pray that that would be true for our church, South Point that you died for, that you gave your life for. I pray that we would be a people who would be humbly submitting ourselves as a congregation before you. Have your rule and reign in our midst. Help us to be a church that you desire us to be. Not that we have in our mind's eye built up so that other churches would be able to say, man, that's a great church. All the while, dead Help us to not fool ourselves. Help us to live lives in obedience and surrender to you. By your grace and for your glory, it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.